So Professor Anderson, I'm so happy to have this chance to um, engage in conversation with you about your work. Um, to folks who are watching this vid video, Professor Cheryl Anderson is a lawyer and a scholar and professor of Old Testament Hebrew Bible at Garrett Evangelical Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. And she's done extensive work on legal theory, intersectional identities, and other topics, um, applying these insights to advanced biblical study. And so, um, and I'm in, in, she's published several books and a number of articles, including a 2004 book, Women, Ideology and Violence, Critical Theory and the Construction of Gender, um, a 2009 book, on uh, ancient laws and contemporary controversies, the need for inclusive biblical interpretation, and is currently involved in working on her next book, Crying Out to the Lord, Womanist Reflections on Biblical Interpretation in the Era of HIV AIDS, which we've talked about in a separate video more. In this particular conversation, I actually wanna start with um, some a part of your 2009 book, advocating for a more inclusive biblical interpretation, where you pretty forcefully and persuasively argue um, for a form of interpretation that unmasks supposedly objective readers of the Bible as interested, active interpreters, and incorporates the perspectives of the marginalized majority. And so um, if we could start with that, because you you linked back to some debates that are happening within legal studies between um, or advocates of an interpretation of the Constitution um, who are looking for an originalist interpretation versus people who view the Constitution as a living document. And um, I, it might be helpful for folks to hear some about how biblical studies can exclude and oppress through its equivalent of an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that's a, a complicated question. Um, yes, I, I found in both my legal circles and in biblical studies, there was this assumption that the tradition um, should always go back to what the founding fathers said, in, 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 in legal terms, or to what the Bible says <laughs> in, in church circles. And that can be deeply problematic, especially when, as, as the world has actually become smaller <laughs> and, and we're, we're interacting with more people who are different from, the ones we might have grown up with, um, when we understand how how global dynamics occur, um, um, we we be, we have had to become more aware of how these readings, these traditional readings, whether of the Constitution or of the Bible, have excluded people and excluded their realities. I mean, that's, it's not just that they didn't listen to their voices, they didn't take into account the realities that, that surround them. And to start with the constitution first, I mean, I, I, I was struck when my, my mother and, and I took 
my, and my nephew, her grandson, and a little friend of his to Washington, D.C. And we happened to go to look at the Declaration of Independence. And it was, it was at that time that I saw in one of the exhibits that at the time of the first presidential election in the United States, only about 6% of the population could vote. And that just struck me. You had to be, you know, basically a white male and a property owner. So you had to be privileged in order to vote. And I was struck by that because it means that for all of the rest of us, we have a struggle to vote in this country. And of course, now that. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, as, as you said, that book was published in 2009, but we have to really realize that it's in our DNA to exclude people, even though we have all of these documents that talk about us being a democracy and, and so forth. We, we have this almost natural tendency as, <laughs> as, as a nation to exclude with the Bible, whether it's in academic studies or in the church, we're told that there's only one way to read these texts. And it's always viewed as either objective or divine. It either comes from God or, or it's these objective scholars. And as I tell my students, it's not that, especially when these early methods were developing, it wasn't so much that they were objective, it's just that they all looked alike. And, and from their context, there were certain questions that never would have come up. Um, I still don't understand how a text like Sodom and Gomorrah or Judges 19 could be considered um, anti-homosexuality texts when they're about gang rape number one and where they never ever critiqued the fact that the women are being, you know, that, it, that basically these texts are saying that it's better to rape a woman than a man. I mean, I, I just, I don't get that. I mean, to me, that's not being objective. That's just not being one who would ever be subjected to that. So it, it doesn't concern you. It's not your, your, your concern. So um, what I've wanted to do in my work is to say, look, we have to take these different realities into account, whether it's of the US Constitution or the Bible, either in the church or in academia. We have to realize that there are, that these texts are powerful. The Constitution and the Bible are powerful texts, and yet they can be misused if you don't have them in discussion with some other realities. And, and that's the ongoing struggle in both of these arenas um, to make them more diverse, to make them more inclusive, and to not have people say, well, I'm sorry you're hurt by this biblical text, but, but it's just what the Bible says. No, it's not what the Bible says. It's your reading of the Bible that's causing the harm. And we need to read the Bible differently. So I hope I got at that. It's, 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 it's kind of hard because it seems like you're comparing apples and oranges, but to me, the Bible and the Constitution both function 
in, in similar ways, yeah. No, I think that analogy is really interesting and powerful because as you say, the te both texts are very powerful in the culture. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and at the same time, how one decides to read them mm -hmm. and making clear it's a decision is really crucial. Um, I want to turn to a specific example of, of some of what I think you're talking about um, in terms of looking at sort of a multidimensional view of uh, biblical study. It's an article that I often have my students read as an example sort of of the direction a, a sort of multidimensional, critical, historical, intersectional reading of the Bible might go. And it's called Reflections on in an Inter- Ethnic Racial Era on Inter-Ethnic Racial Marriage in Ezra, which appears in the volume, They Were All Together in One Place. Um, and so I just wanted to hear some more specifics about how your work on legal theory and intersecting identities in the Bible led you to this topic and illustrate some of what we're talking about. Right, I, I was struck by the, the fact that it's only been, it's been less, what is it? It's 50 years that interracial marriage has been legal in the United States, the Loving versus Virginia case. Um, and so to me, that's not ancient history. That's really part of our contemporary era. And yet, I love the language of Ezra 9. I mean, he just, I mean, it's just such a dramatic text. And he comes in and he just sat appalled. You know, I just, I just love the language. But I realized that in a conventional reading, a traditional reading of that text, we're led to believe this is a good thing, that these foreign wives and children are being sent away and that these marriages are going to be allowed. But what does it mean for African-Americans, many of whom like myself, you know, remember <laughs> an earlier era, um, what does it mean for us to have to read that text and think that it's a good thing? I, I, just, I, I just thought that it requires us to ignore an important history it ignores, it, it calls us to, to, to not be aware of how those dynamics are still playing out in the society around us. Um, it's, I, I, just, I just was struck by that contrast, our history and the way they're to read it as people of faith, just, just that. So I used, critical race theory, which I was familiar with from my legal days. And in my first book, I used uh, critical legal theory um, to analyze biblical laws. So I was familiar with that. I was familiar with the concept of intersectionality. And what I found fascinating as I was writing the article is that I could identify those same dynamics in the era of Ezra. 
that's what was fascinating to me is that you know there was enough work published on it that I could re I could reconstruct race, class, and gender for in the era of Ezra, and then show what the parallels were for the anti-miscegenation you know context for the laws in the United States. Exactly the same. The fact that I could parallel that was just fascinating. So it meant that there really is a way of looking at these texts that we haven't done. And yet, when you're trained to be a biblical scholar, you can do it. It's just, it's just that in, in this case, for me, it just took a Black woman who objected to anti-miscegenation laws to say, wait a minute, this isn't a good thing for us to read these texts as if they are. It's, 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 it's harmful, it's destructive of a community to do that. And that's what we learned in, you know, before the 1960s in, in the US. So um, it, it brought together both the ancient context and the contemporary context. And I, and I think it helped set me up for the, the the, uh, the, the, because it, I, I think this was published before the second book was. And that second book is about how these unresolved issues in biblical, it's particularly biblical laws and some um, narratives then show up in the contemporary issues that we have today. They, they never get resolved. And, and, and this was a good lead in to, to thinking about that again, as I was working on the second book. Well, that's fascinating. And um, it kind of connects to my last question, which is like, think you mentioned ancient context and contemporary context and these mm -hmm. multiple layers. And mm -hmm. uh, you've been trained, you know, in traditional, so-called traditional biblical methods. And at the same time, you're a leader in incorporating other methods that are all too often excluded or marginalized within the guild. And so I wanted to close by asking you what you saw as sort of the outlook for diverse methodologies in biblical study. What kind of place might there still be if there is one for historical critical methodologies um, in a methodological mix that's more inclusive? And, and also just, anticipating because we've talked a little before this how your thoughts about this have changed some over the recent past how you'd answer this question right yeah um it's interesting because i remember and to answer this question i have to remind you of something you said to me years ago and that is we were at one of the many receptions at, at an SBL annual meeting. And you told me that you use this article. And you said that one of the questions you asked your students was, was if this was a historical critical analysis. And I just loved that question because I thought, I don't think of myself as a historical critical scholar. <laughs> and it was like, how did he see that in that text? But that's exactly what it is in the first part of the article. And I think if you had asked me five years ago about you know, historical critical methods, I'd go, I don't deal with those. I don't, I mean, it's something I had to learn in grad school, but I don't, 
I don't do that. Um, but what I have come to see is that liberationist perspectives, Asian, Asian American, African, African American, African American interpretation, Latino, Latina, all of us, I think of those as hermeneutics, their perspectives that we come to the text with. And then we have a whole range of methodologies that we might use for our analysis. We might use historical critical lens. We might use literary lens. Um, we, we, for, for instance, in the womanist um, literature as it's developing, very often um, a biblical scholar might go back to the 19th century preaching women and look at themes about how they use the Bible in sermons. So there are a lot of different methods that can be used, but I think that what marks us is, is the liberationist perspective that, that we come with and that we then you know, open up the text in a different way. So what I've come to, <laughs> to appreciate more, and again, I'm kind of surprised I'm saying this, but I actually do default to some historical critical analysis um, because even when you look at something like JEDP, what that shows is that these are in fact interested texts. Even though, of course, we have to say now P and non-P and all of that. But still, it shows when you have the DTRH tradition, when you have that you know, being reworked in Chronicles, if to have you know, the whole um, act consequence logic um, and Proverbs then responded to in Ecclesiastes. You have, what I'm seeing is that the historical critical method, when you realize that basically these are interested documents that are talking about things usually that way out of time, <laughs> because they're written much later and they're, they're projecting back on things. That is exactly what I want to be able to show because it's showing that these are in fact political texts in the sense that we think of politics today. They weren't objective texts. I mean, it's so hard for students to hear in an intro course, oh, that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. But I keep telling students, look, learn about what this stuff, what we do think, we, what, how we think this Bible came to be and what that means. It shows you the dynamism of the tradition. One tradition didn't say, well, you know, Mark described a gospel, so we don't need to do it. You know, each gospel then, you know, um, was presenting Jesus in a different way for a different community. And, and we see the same kind of reworking of texts for different communities in the Hebrew Bible. And so I, I would, I, it's, it's funny, but I actually spend a lot more time teaching basic historical critical <laughs> information that I ever thought I would. I, I just taught Exodus and I had um, some PhD students in the class. And so we went through a critical analysis of Exodus and the students and I loved it because it was just, <laughs> so I've got to say that I've really come to appreciate just 
classical historical critical methods, but just because they show how the Bible was written and they show that there were very interested human beings who were doing this. Um, I, just, I just have to give you one story. I was interviewed recently um, about my work on LGBTQ plus inclusion. And um, I was saying that even if you debunk the clobber passages, which it's very easy to do uh, so that they don't say what you know, people think they say, um, that the afterlife of bad readings continue forever. And I was giving the example of the curse of Ham. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's to, to use a historical critical analysis, you know, it's not even a sophisticated one to see that that text comes, first of all, is the curse is not God, from God, number one. And then it's not Ham who is actually cursed, it's Canaan. And there's a reason why it's Canaan, and it's because they want the land, you know? I mean, it's just, you, it's, it's, so even though that text has been misused in, in the African-American context to support slavery and continuing discrimination, Part of the problem is that we never dealt with the fact that this was an interested text to begin with. And so, yes, it could be abused by somebody because that's that was part of what is behind the text itself. So it, it's just interesting how looking back at these traditions and how they got shaped and what their interests were, I think it will help us sort of um, not only read these texts with caution as, as we should, because they have been so mishandled, but also to see that some of these dynamics are embedded in the text themselves. And unless we call them out, they're too easily used. And I, I think that the worst consequences of, of many biblical texts were not in antiquity, they're now because we don't know how to analyze them more fully and look at the interests behind them. So anyway, that's, so, so that's my evolution to sort of come around to historical And I never thought I would. <laughs> well, I wonder, and I, I, let me check to see if this would fit your own self-perception, but um, some of what I've thought about as I've read your article and reread it as I've taught it with students is, uh, that all too often, I think, historical criticism as it's been traditionally practiced is quite selective in how much it views the situatedness. It, it's okay with situating biblical texts as interested, as you say, but it doesn't recognize how interested the historical critical interpreter themselves are or, or the various readers of these texts over time. That's and so it's sort of a very partial historical criticism. It's, it's historical criticism only for other people in the sense. <laughs> and um, and what, I, I, what I think I see in, in your article is an attempt to be more thoroughgoing in terms of being historically critical of, yeah, okay, we're gonna look at the ancient context and some of what we think was going on there. Mm -hmm. Then let's look at some of the very interested, partial, harmful ways people have read it over time in the meantime, and then 
critically interrogate the way we decide to use these texts now and be historically critical about ourselves and and that and um, that would be like maybe it's over it's taking this term historical critical and applying it too broadly but mm -hmm. I think it points maybe points to the problem and 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 so anyway I that's how I if, if one was to use the term historical critical in the positive way right. for what I see going on in your article that's what I'd say right. one might do right yeah yeah, no, that, that it's really true. I, I think when you were describing this definition of historical criticism, I was reminded of Gail Yee's presidential address um, almost two years ago now. And um, to me, when I listened to her that evening, I was thinking she's doing what historical criticism should have done all along. And yet it's bringing the ideology of the text, the, 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 the socioeconomic dynamics of the context to bear. Um, and to me, it was like, yeah, this is what it should have been doing. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. It was a partial analysis before. And I think that as we have more biblical scholars of color and, um, and others who are more interested in opening up, you know, these other conversations um, to begin to see that, yes, actually you can begin to do this from a historical critical framework, but you've got to redefine. I mean, I just, I mean, coming out of grad school, it was like, I do not care what was going on in ancient Israel. I mean, that just, I, mean, I just didn't. Want to get it, want to work on that, but I do want to know enough to understand what is the context of of, of these texts. Yeah, I do want to know that. Yeah, so it's just kind of interesting that I I wouldn't have answered that question in the same way. And, and, and so yeah, I've kind of grown into it. <laughs> Well, that's so great. I and I find myself continuing to grow too as I evolve since graduate school. So it's yeah. nice to see how we are in these different trajectories. Um, so um, anyway, I think with that, I'll close. And uh, I think you froze just a second there. Uh, and thank you again for the time you spent talking with me. Um, and right, uh, yeah. <laughs> really, really appreciate. Uh, you really appreciate you taking this time out to share your perspective. And I hope folks who view this video uh, check out your work, um, both past work articles and books, um, the 2004 Women Ideology and Violence and the 2009 Toward More Inclusive, or excuse me, Ancient Laws and Contemporary Controversies. And then also keep an eye out for your forthcoming work, which I also look forward to seeing on Crying Out to the Lord. Thank you again. All right, thank you so much. <laughs> 